everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. Wonderful to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you to all of you who are here to watch this show. Um, make sure that you, after the show, right after the stream, we're going to be doing a call-in. So you can join us at call-in, and that's a free app that you use on your phone. A lot of you have come to those. Those are always a good time. Make sure you like the stream right now. Just give it a thumbs up. Why should you like the stream? Because it's going to be a great stream. Okay, it's going to be a stream where we talk to Jeff Sachs, who is an economist and the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Then we're going to be speaking to Norman Solomon, who is an American journalist, media critic, activist, and the co-founder of Roots Action. And he's going to talk to us about why Joe Biden shouldn't be running and why people shouldn't be excited about Hakeem Jeffries and why people shouldn't be excited about Biden wanting to move the primaries. So it's a great show, jam-packed, chock full of gems. So what can you do to support the show? First of all, let me just adjust this a little bit. Okay, it's a little bit better. So you can like the stream um, and you can subscribe to this channel. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. You can also become Patreon supporters of this podcast, of this live stream. You can do that at uh, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you can join the YouTube channel and then you get all sorts of cool emojis and badges and it shows you how long you've been a member. It's like a cool original gangster type of thing that you can, in fact, do. Um, what else do I want to say? I announced the call-in. Oh, if you want to comment on the stream, make sure that you uh, are a subscriber. Also, you're definitely going to want to become Patreons because we're going to be releasing our Patreon-only interview with uh, Stefania Maurizzi. She was excellent. We played my interview with her last week about Julian Assange. But also, uh, I'm going to be giving you a big, healthy dose of uh, Jeff Sachs, as you'll see. But in addition to that, I have an entire half hour of really good Patreon only with Jeff Sachs, where he gets into COVID, the lab leak theory, and some other stuff, some spicy hot takes. So that's all in the Patreon. And that'll be released later this week. But um Soon you'll have the Stefania, that'll be out very shortly, and then later in the week, the Jeff Sachs. So I think that's it. I think I'm just going to play the interview with Jeff Sachs, and then I will, after that, bring in Norman Solomon. So much, Professor Sachs, for joining us. Ah, oh, Great to be with you. Thank you. So you're someone who I could ask so many different questions to about so many different topics because you're very prolific. I want to start uh with a question about a book that you wrote. It's called To Move the World, one of the many books that you've written. This one is called To Move the World, JFK's Quest for Peace. And I want to know what the takeaways from that book were, uh, how it applies to the world today, and especially how it applies to the proxy war in Ukraine. Well, yeah, thanks for asking about that, especially uh, it, it's a book about 
the Cuban Missile Crisis and the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The world came within a hair's breadth of nuclear war, uh, really closer than we can even imagine. And after uh, we avoided global self-destruction, both the President John F. Kennedy and Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev realized this is insane. We have to pull back. And so in 1963, Kennedy made a kind of campaign for peace. Uh, and he gave a speech in June 1963 that is known to historians as his peace speech. People can find it online. And it's just beautiful. Uh, and so I wrote a book about it because I thought it was the best speech I know of by an American president. And he says, look, you know, peace, talking about peace is not as exciting uh, as talking about war, but we need to talk about peace. And the whole point of the speech, which is incredible, is he says, you know, to make peace, Americans have to change their attitudes, not just blame the other side, but peace will depend on American attitudes. And Kennedy tells the American people, you know, the other side is human beings. They want peace too. It's possible to reach mutual agreements, and we should respect the other side and find a way to live together with the Soviet Union. And um, Khrushchev heard the speech, actually immediately summoned the uh, U.S. Uh, envoy in Moscow and, and said to Avril Harriman, that, that is the finest speech by an American president since Franklin Roosevelt. I want to make peace with that man. And a few weeks afterwards, they signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which is historically incredibly important. So I fell in love with the idea that, you know, you can actually reason your way to peace and that we need to do it. The more I've lived and learned and studied also the Cuban Missile Crisis, the more terrifying it is because it nearly spun completely out of control. The, the moment that was closest to nuclear war was an, an event that was outside of the control of both leaders of the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It was a disabled submarine that thought it was under fire and was about to launch a nuclear-tipped torpedo. And we would have gone to nuclear war over that. And the order of uh, the captain of the submarine was countermanded by a Soviet Communist Party official who said, I don't think this is a good idea, and stopped the firing of the torpedo. And it saved the world, actually. And so when I look at this horrible war in Ukraine, and I, I know the situation in Russia and Ukraine quite well because I was advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev, I was advisor to Boris Yeltsin, I was advisor to Ukraine's president, uh, Leonid Kuchma. Uh, I've been around uh, both countries for a long time, and I've been around Washington for a long time. And I know, I know that this war could have been avoided, should have been avoided. Biden could have avoided the war. Uh, there were red lines of the other side that we kept crossing deliberately. And you don't do that with a nuclear superpower. It's not a matter of being blackmailed. It's a matter of common sense that you give a little space on each side so that you don't get into a confrontation. And we put Ukraine in the middle of the U.S.-Russia rivalry. And now Ukraine is being 
bombed every day. And they say, help us, help us, the United States. But what they, what they don't quite understand is that we put them in the middle of this because the Russians said, look, just stay away from our neighborhood with your NATO military alliance. Do not enter Ukraine. Do not enter the country of Georgia, which is also in the Black Sea region. Don't do it. And we should have said, okay, yes, we'll stay a distance. You don't invade. Let's just leave quiet in between. And unfortunately, Washington didn't get it. And um, I, so I know it's very fashionable. In fact, it's the only acceptable thing to blame everything on Putin. But I, I just know too much history to know that that simple story is not the right way to understand what's happened. Uh, the right way to understand what's happened is we kept pounding them uh, in, uh, punching them in the eye, provoking, and we got too close. And now we have a disaster and we got to stop the disaster. And, and as we talk, Katie, I think it's, there's a glimmer because for the first time in a long time, Biden said, okay, I would meet with that guy. And immediately the Russian spokesman for Putin said, yeah, we would meet. Well, this is the first time during 2022 that they talk like this. We really need to sit down and negotiate. And there is a way out of this war before it gets so disastrous for Ukraine that we can't imagine or before it escalates to be disastrous for the whole world. And why is it that the United States uh, was so provocative, has been so provocative towards Russia? You know, because after the end of the Soviet Union, we thought, hey, we're pretty good. We're, we're the sole superpower. We're, uh, we're, we're the uh, most powerful country on the planet by far in world history. We can do pretty much what we want. And that really was the view in both political parties. So it's not really a partisan thing. It, it is what we call a neoconservative thing. It was the idea that, hey, we, we can whoop who we want when we want, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, we can stick it to uh, Vladimir Putin. We are the United States of America. And uh, we acted on that. We had, remember, Cheney and Rumsfeld and that crowd? Well, we have them in both parties. We we have Victoria Nuland in, in this administration who was out there helping to overthrow a pro-Russian president of Ukraine in 2014. And now she's the undersecretary of state for political affairs. So we have these neocons who say, compromise? Are you kidding? We're the United States. And since we think we're so powerful, well, we're in Afghanistan. That's great. Syria, Iraq, Libya, uh, Ukraine. Oh, so successful. And I say, are you kidding? My whole life, I, you know, I was born a long time ago in 1954. I grew up in the Vietnam War period, and it wasn't just Vietnam. It was Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. I went through the Contras and Nicaragua. I went through Afghanistan, the first Iraq War, the second Iraq War, the CIA operation to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, the, the NATO operation to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi. Now, the, the uh, U.S. role in overthrowing Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian Ukrainian president in 
2014, this expansion of NATO being tried right now. I just think, yeah, we're, we're powerful, but is this really good for the United States? Is this really working? Uh, and my answer is no, uh, it's not working well. And most of all, when Putin said last year, look, the red line is don't expand NATO. And immediately the White House said, oh, no one tells us what to do, least of all Russia. And I called the White House and I said, you know, you should listen. Do not put Russia, do not put Ukraine into this situation. You will make Ukraine the Afghanistan of Europe. And by that, I mean a perpetual war and leveling these cities in Ukraine as we're watching right now. And millions of people without heat and electricity. And we say, yeah, we're winning. Come on, we're not winning. This is not the right way to behave. And who did you speak to at the White House and how was it received? I, it was uh, not well received uh, and uh, I didn't make any headway. Right. Was it, I mean, I, it, did you speak to Biden himself? No. No, okay. You spoke I, to I, I spoke to advisors. Yeah. You're someone who has a lot of access and although it's probably been changing because you've been saying things that are considered heretical. Um, they, they don't love what I'm saying. Let's, let's put it that way. I, I don't know whether, I mean, they still, they still hear me, right. <laughs> so it's, but it's pretty much one way. Um, right. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, have you, have you, do you think that you've changed your politics or your view of the world? You've had such a long and prolific career and you're very well respected and established. And it's almost shocks me that someone of your stature says things that are uh, outside of the mainstream as you do. I mean that as a compliment. Is this something you've always had or is this a newer thing? Well, it, uh, it grew over time because <clears throat> when I started my career, which was 1980, I got my PhD and I became an assistant professor at Harvard University. I can tell you, because I remember it, how proud I was to be an American economist in the world. Uh, you know, I studied international economics, so I was going to go out and solve international problems as an American. And I thought that was pretty cool. My hero intellectually uh, is a well-known, very famous British economist of the 20th century, John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes I was very deeply influenced, uh, like many of my generation, but I read a lot of Keynes's essays, and I just loved the guy, how intelligent and smart he was and, and decent. And um, he, at the time, was, you know, an economist when Britain was uh, with such power and influence. And I thought, you know, that was interesting because he could get something done that was quite good, and I felt really proud uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be an American at this time when America has this ability to help solve global problems. And here I am starting my career and I'm going to help solve global problems as, as an American economist. And I felt that way for a number of years. But then I saw more and more that I didn't really like. And for me, a big turning point is when I became an advisor, always, by the way, unpaid. I don't do this commercially. You know, I do this as a, as a public intellectual, uh, so-called, or uh, as a, as an academic. But I became an advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev's 
economic team. And then I became an advisor to Boris Yeltsin's economic team. And I knew really from Keynes, by the way, that when the country that you're trying to help is in really, really deep financial crisis. After all, the whole system had completely collapsed. Then that country needs some help to get back on its feet. And that was really my main message in 1990, 1991, 1992. And I helped Poland get back on its feet economically. And everything I recommended, by the way, they the White House adopted almost right away. And I said, oh, God, good. You know, they, they, they're listening to every word. And then I said the same thing about the Soviet Union with Gorbachev. Zero. Sachs, are you crazy? We're not going to help the Soviet Union. They're our enemy. And then uh, when Soviet Union ended and uh, Yeltsin's economic team asked me to help, I said the same thing about Russia. Again, zero. I thought, that's pretty weird because what I'm recommending for Russia is exactly what I recommended for Poland. And it worked for Poland. And the White House supported what I recommended for Poland. But in the same conditions, it doesn't do it for Russia. I was a little naive, I have to say, because as an economist, I was making economic recommendations, how to help. But I don't think the mood of Rumsfeld and Cheney and others in 1992 was to help. It was, hey, we are the sole world superpower. We get to change everything right now. And then I waited for, with Clinton coming in, no real change. And then on and on. And I began to see that and, and understand better, quite frankly, uh, you know, as you grow up in, in this, because I've really worked all over the world and uh, quite extensively in well over a hundred countries. I visited uh, most of the world and know most of the world leaders one way or another, or many, many of them. And I came to understand that the U.S. was a little bit unhinged and that the disasters of the Vietnam War era, which I knew full well because I had marched in the streets against the Vietnam War, and uh, Watergate and the other and the abuses, the Contra wars in Central America. And I also worked in Central America in those years. Um, those were not simply aberrations. Those <laughs> were, those were part of the design set. Uh, and I, you know, you become more sophisticated. You see a lot of lying that you know is lying because as I, you know, have become much more, for 20 years, I've been senior advisor to the United Nations on many things. I see a lot. I'm, I'm, I, I, I hear a lot. Um, and I don't like it when we're not telling the truth. Uh, and I find it quite dangerous and I don't like the spin and the narratives. Uh, and I don't like uh, wars that are fought as narratives. I don't like it when uh, we say in our, for some reason, our mainstream media repeat, well, this war was an unprovoked war that started February 24th, 2022. No, uh, there were lots of provocations, and I know some of them firsthand, and I know many, many of them by uh, things that leaders have told me uh, 
in detail. And I understand the provocations. Or today, uh, there's a, a New York Times story uh, about uh, uh, how the Germans connived, let's put it that way, to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, with Russia. And uh, yeah, because they wanted uh, natural gas from Russia. The United States opposed that. And uh, I've been saying for months, well, who blew up that pipeline? Uh, the, that would almost surely be the United States. If someone has some other evidence, show me. But otherwise, I know a lot of motivation and capacity that the U.S. did it. And President Biden on February 7th of this year said, if Russia invades, the Nord Stream pipeline is finished. And then the incredulous reporter said, but Mr. President, that's a, a Russian-German pipeline. And the president responded, uh, believe me, we have our ways. And, and so today in the New York Times, they talk about Germany and Russia building the pipeline against U.S. opposition. But then when it comes to the paragraph, the short message about the destruction, they say nobody knows who did it. Come on. If you're the New York Times, when I was growing up, the New York Times was looking into Watergate. The New York Times was uh, looking into the lies of the Vietnam War and so on. You know, it had an active view that the government doesn't tell the truth. So you go out to find out what the truth is. Now the New York Times is like, mm, suck your thumb. Don't ask anything. Don't ask any question. Don't be curious. We don't know who blew up the pipeline. I'll give another example. You know, Ukraine has been shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Well, maybe it's understandable. They want the power plant back. Russia grabbed the power plant. But it's dangerous to shell a nuclear power plant. In fact, it's reckless to shell a nuclear power plant. So we should be saying to our ally, Ukraine, don't shell a nuclear power plant. Instead, the New York Times says almost every day, each side accuses the other of shelling the nuclear power plant. Well, I, I can tell you and I can tell your listeners, because I'm well briefed on it, that Ukraine is shelling the nuclear power plant. Oh, but we're not allowed to say that. Excuse me. We, we can't say that. So this is the problem, Katie. So you asked me how I feel about it. I feel about it that we should tell the truth. Because actually, the world's really complicated. It's really in trouble. And grownups should behave like grownups. That's my bottom line. And there are some interesting recent examples of you telling the truth and the response to you when you tell the truth. Hold on, let's see. So this is you on Bloomberg television. I remember the moment. <laughs> I'm sure it's seared. In, I'm sure it's seared in your memory. The destruction of uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, which I, I would bet was a U.S action, perhaps U.S. and, and Poland. Uh, this is uh, right, Jeff, Jeff, we got to stop there. That's a, that's a quite a statement as well. Why do you feel Absolutely. that that was a U.S. action? What evidence do you have of that? Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. Uh, helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk uh, were uh, circling over this area. We also had the threats from the United States earlier in this year that one way or another, we are going to end Nord Stream. We also have a remarkable statement by Secretary Blinken last Friday in a press conference. He says, this is also a tremendous opportunity. 
It's a strange way to, it's, uh, sorry, it's a strange way to talk if you're worried about the piracy on international infrastructure of vital significance. So I know this runs counter to our narrative. It runs, you're not allowed to say these things uh, in, in, uh, in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the okay. U.S. did it. And just to tell you, well, and, and by, by the way, even reporters on our papers that are involved tell me, Privately, yeah, well, of course, but well, it doesn't show up in our, our media. Professor, I, I don't want to get into the tit for tat about what did or did yeah, not. Was, so that was an interesting response. <laughs> well, it, it was a, a little bit of a funny moment because, you know, usually I'm on that. I'll, I'll probably never be on that show again, right. but I've been on that show many times. And usually they have me on for, you know, two or three of the segments, maybe up to half an hour. And after that, I was off. And then when I was off, one of the anchors, not the two that you saw, but the third one, went after me for five minutes. They didn't cut off my camera so I could watch on my Zoom. And he just, you know, ad hominem attack for five minutes. And, and you know, of course, I wasn't uh, around to, uh, to to speak about Respond it. Respond to it, right. But, but this is a problem that it's a game of narratives right now. And we don't need games. We, we actually need real discussion of very serious issues before we blow ourselves up by, by mistake or just blunder or misinformation or so many other possibilities. Right. And here's another example of you saying something that people seem uh, a bit uncomfortable with. And this is from the Athens Democracy Forum in October. Yes. Just playing some of your greatest hits here. The most violent country in the world in the 19th century, by far, was perhaps the most democratic or second most democratic, and that was Britain. You can be democratic at home and ruthlessly imperial abroad. The most violent country in the world since 1950 has been the United States. It's Jeff, been by let's, far involved Jeffrey, in stop now. Let's, let's, let's Jeffrey, I, I'm, I'm, Jeffrey, I'm your moderator, and it's enough. Okay, I'm done. That was another interesting uh, moment. They didn't seem very comfortable with what you were saying. Yeah, you know, the truth is I had talked on a long time, so I probably oh, okay. talked probably talked too long, but but also I should have been allowed to finish the thought. Right. Uh, it, it, it was actually a, a real and serious point that I was making, which is that all my life the U.S. has been in wars and wars of choice. And wars that have gone badly and wars that have inflicted incredible harm on other people and uh, damage to the U.S. and costing trillions of dollars. And we should acknowledge that and understand this. It's a little hard because some of this is so completely underreported. You might think wars would, you know, would have to be reported, but one example that I know quite a bit about is Syria. Uh, we say that Syria had a civil war or that it had 
a, a, a rebellion against Assad in 2011. But what Americans never heard about was the presidential finding by Obama that the CIA should work together with the other countries in the Middle East to overthrow Assad. In other words, this was a regime change operation. And I think regime change operations are awful. Uh, we shouldn't be doing them. Uh, they are incredibly destructive and filled with lies, especially when they're covert as this one was. And we never discussed the U.S. role in this. Everything was basically the lie that uh, there's an insurrection and we're helping the freedom fighters, not that the United States is actively trying to overthrow a government. And is that right or is that wrong? Is that a decent idea? And one of the things that Putin sees is that the U.S. does that a lot. It shouldn't be a secret, but it's not well understood. Of course, we overthrew Saddam Hussein. We tried to overthrow Assad and failed. We overthrew and basically uh, led to the murder of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. We overthrew the Afghan government. But even more than that, what Americans really don't know and should know is that in 1979, it was the CIA that funded the Mujahideen, which was the precursor of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and all of that. We did that as a lure to try to draw the Soviet Union into a war in Afghanistan. Really a deep, dirty trick that now not only ended up destroying Afghanistan over the course of many decades, but drew the United States into this complete morass for 40 years as well. And then Putin says, I don't want NATO on my border. And the United States says, oh, why? Don't be paranoid. We're defensive, peace-loving country. You know, when you know a bit, you, you just say, don't put NATO on Russia's border. That's what you know. And if, if we had, if the New York Times were doing its job, which it doesn't do anymore, and if the Washington Post were doing its job, which it doesn't do anymore, and it was giving some context, some background, some history to fill out what these conflicts are about, we wouldn't be stuck in these conflicts. Right. And speaking of uh, narratives, I wanted to ask you about uh, your experience um, chairing the COVID-19 commission at the Lancet. Uh, and I want to ask you uh, to respond to a recent appearance of um, Dr. Fauci. I saw a, a clip. Maybe it's this one or not. I'm yeah. not sure. But I saw something interesting. And that was my interview with Jeff Sachs. And for those of you joining, Jeff Sachs is an economist, the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And he is, as you could see, a very outspoken voice on lots of these issues. So make sure that you become Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. 
And you'll hear 30 more minutes of my chat with Jeff. We talk about Fauci. We talk about the lab leak theory. We talk about China, Uyghurs, lots of really controversial things. And that, again, is at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, please like this stream if you haven't already liked it. That's just a way to help support the show. If you can't afford to become a Patreon, you can also just watch the show regularly. And also, you can still support the show for just $1 a month. You just make the show happen. So, so grateful to all the people who are Patreon supporters. So grateful to all the people who tune into the show. And even if you can't be a Patreon supporter, please do spread the word on these shows. Now we're going to bring into the show another great guest. Uh, he's been he's someone who's been on the podcast, but he's never been on the live stream. So he's making his live stream debut. And I'm speaking about none other than Norman Solomon, who is an American journalist, activist, media critic, author. He's the co-founder and national coordinator of RootsAction.org. He's the author of several books, including his most recent book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. And that will be published by the New Press in June of 2023. So Norman Solomon, welcome. Howdy. Hi, how are you? I'm hanging in, given the way the world is. Yeah, I know. Well, thank you for making the time. And thank you for doing all that you do at Roots Nation, which is a great organization. Did I just, I always am afraid I'm going to call it Netroots Nation. Oh, yeah, no, like no. rootsaction.org. Rootsaction.org. Yeah. Rootsaction, sorry. I knew that when I said it, I was, I'm sorry, I don't mean to taint you with that. I used to go to Networks Nation myself, but rootsaction.org. Okay. So, Norman, you are with rootsaction.org, and one of the things that you guys are working on is a campaign to dissuade Joe Biden from running. That campaign is called Don't Run Joe. So tell us why you're launching this Don't Run Joe campaign. If Joe Biden doesn't get out of the way, we're going to have him on the top of the ticket in 2024. If people want a president uh, who continues to support the workers' state, who will not support workers like the railway workers, who won't fight for Medicare for all, who really doesn't go all out to uh, get rid of student debt, and this could go on and on, a very long sentence with a lot of semicolons, uh, we're going to have Joe Biden for quite a while, unless there's some divine intervention or people organize. And I think it's probably better to count on people organizing. So Roots Action launched uh, the Don't Run Joe campaign. Everybody's invited to go there for details at don'trunjoe.org. And what we've seen really is a lot of fluctuation in the mass media spin. Uh, early summer, Joe Biden polls were down. Okay, maybe he's only going to be a one-term president. Uh, then there was some very overhyped victories in Congress with legislation and so forth. Then we were told that it all hinged on midterms. And because despite his low disapproval rating or high disapproval rating, low approval rating, despite Biden, the albatross uh, across the neck of the Democratic Party, uh, Democrats did better than expected. So the corporate media now are cheerleading him on. That doesn't change some key realities. He is not a progressive president. He has not taken advantage of the bully pulpit and the power of the presidency, for instance, with executive orders that don't require persuading uh, Manchester Cinema to do anything. And also, he's a dead weight on the party. He's 10% down in terms of disapproval. Uh, and so we have two parties that are a neoliberal party and a right-wing neo-fascist party 
And the uh, neoliberal party, uh, if you will, the lesser of two evils, a significantly overall lesser of two evils, it is weighed down by Biden. Uh, and uh, I don't think there's a question that if it weren't for Biden being that dead weight, the uh, Democrats wouldn't be having to surrender control of the House in a few weeks. So it's sort of a, a long way of saying that if we don't organize to get Biden out of the way, we're going to be stuck with him. We're going to be stuck with Harris. And we're not going to like it if we're progressives and we have progressive value. Can you comment a little bit on what Biden just did with the railway workers, by the way? Well, uh, if he really was going to be anything like what he claimed to be a year ago when he proclaimed himself to be the most pro-union president in American history, he would have fought like hell to insist that at minimum, uh, there are paid sick leaves for these workers who go very long hours day after day uh, are living under conditions that are injurious to them, damaging to their family life, their personal life, hazardous to their lives, and also hazardous to the lives of uh, other people who uh, encounter trend one way or the other. So it's uh, an example of the huge gap between the rhetoric of human rights who's against human rights rhetorically, and the behavior of the president. Now, is he worse or better than uh, Trump? Well, that's a very high jump over low standards to say that he's not as bad as Trump. But that's not going to get us very far when we have uh, so many children and elderly and so many others who, for instance, are suffering from lack of access to health care, housing, uh, basic nutrition. And so this is the baseline that Biden is part of. And if people want to have a Democratic nominee in 2024 who essentially epitomizes the status quo, then that's bad on two counts. One is that the status quo should be recognized as intolerable. And the other is that it's going to be a sitting duck ticket for these right-wing pseudo-populist demagogues, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or anybody else. You actually have an article that's related to this, and it's about Biden's decision to try to change the primary schedule. Can you talk about why he's doing that and why you oppose it? Yeah, uh, Biden is moving to pressure, and there's no doubt that the Democratic National Committee will fold uh, to his pressure. Biden wants the South Carolina primary to come first. And that's not surprising because South Carolina is a very conservative state. Uh, by the way, it's the state with the lowest proportion of unionized workers in the country. It's a state where he can count on uh, one of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives, Jim Clyburn, to do in 2024 what he did in 2020, which is to operate to maximize uh, the Biden turnout and the Biden vote. So in other words, Biden has dislodged uh, New Hampshire, where he got, count them, 8% vote. I mean, how do you run for president uh, when you're, uh, you have a history of being vice president and you get 8% of the vote? You come in fifth in the Democratic primary, which he did in 2020. Got to tell you, Katie, I was there in the last uh, days of the primary campaign in New Hampshire. And I, w I watched, I went to Buttigieg rallies that were uh, many, many hundreds, sometimes even to the thousands of people. I went to Bernie rallies, hundreds or thousands of people. I, I went to a Joe Biden rally. There were about 50 people in the room at a church in Manchester. Uh, and then he ends up with 8% of the vote. 
So, of course, Joe Biden doesn't want New Hampshire to be the first primary state. He wants his buddy, Jim Clyburn, who has gotten more than $1 million in big pharma money in the last decade from big pharma PACs. He wants his friend and ally, Jim Clyburn, to again deliver South Carolina. And this is a very cynical move, as all too often is done in Democratic Party politics and media spin. It's cloaked in the notion of diversity, uh, but it doesn't hold water uh, because there are two very diverse states bordering South Carolina, and both of them are swing states. Uh, there's no way in hell that the Democratic ticket is going to come anywhere near carrying South Carolina. Uh, so if you want to go to diversity and you want to really develop momentum for Democratic Party candidates and do voter ID and so forth, you would make the first primary in North Carolina, where it would be a Georgia genuine swing state. But really what we're seeing is, you know, the, maybe this is a redundant phrase, cynical politics uh, from people in power. And so that is the reality. And uh, we can expect that from Biden. We've got that in from Biden. That's what we get routinely from uh, people in high levels of governmental power. What we should not get is people simply folding and saying, well, that's the scenario. If people want to look ahead uh, two years, six years, 10 years, there is a path that uh, Biden is blazing in terms of primaries. And I think, uh, Kate, this is another aspect of the answers to your question. And that is that to create a new template for these primaries is to bypass states where candidates would actually have to go out and meet people. I mean, when you're in New Hampshire, it's got all the two congressional districts. It's really retail politics. And it's not going to be swayed or determined by who has the maximum number of millions of dollars for TV ad. It's really interpersonal and issues are really dealt with. That's exactly what the corporate Democrats don't want. And you actually cite an article by someone who was praising Biden as shrewd on this. But even he explains how this is to kind of kneecap anyone like Bernie Sanders from ever having any political power again. Yeah, uh, the centrist pundit who's been around a long time, uh, Walter Shapiro, writing in The New Republic, which parenthetically, it was really improving for a couple of years. I don't think that's the case under the current uh, editor. But uh, Shapiro really celebrated this really shrewd under the uh, chessboard chess move by Biden, where uh, it's sort of like a hidden ball trick in baseball or something, where Biden made it all about diversity, uh, the compliant corporate media, whether we're talking about uh, the New York Times or Washington Post or National Public Radio. They just swallow it whole hung uh, that this is a effort to diversify where meanwhile, he has queued up an entire scenario for foreseeably the next decade, at least, where the president will be, let's go where the conservative Democrats and corporate Democrats are well positioned to simply wipe out uh, progressive challenges. And one irony uh, from uh, Jim Clyburn is that he has polemicized against, and others have polemicized against the left wing of the Democratic Party. Another example is Hakeem Jeffries, who has just been anointed and made the Democratic leader in the House of Representatives now that Pelosi has stepped down. 
Hakeem Jeffries, who has only been in the House for 10 years, uh, came to it as a corporate uh, lawyer with his background. Uh, he has explicitly denounced by name uh, democratic socialists. And he did it in the same breath of quoting Martin Luther King Jr. without mentioning that Martin Luther King was a democratic socialist in his own words. And so we have this sort of inversion of the history of the civil rights movement, of progressive movements in general, and the net effect is going to be that these folks who are grabbing hold of power are basically proceeding out of fear of their own base. They know that the base of the Democratic Party is way more progressive than they are. And in fact, there was a poll a few months ago this is mind-blowing. 94% of young Democratic voters do not want Biden to run. So naturally, he's planning to run. In fact, we have a video of that. This is Biden very empathetically explaining what he's going to do, given the lack of popularity that he faces. Two-thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them? And how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for re-election? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of Americans? Watch me. Watch me. Yeah. Well, ironically, one of the responses from even sectors of the left is to watch because there is an understandable reaction, but I think not a helpful one, that what do you expect? Well, what do we expect from the, from the capitalist system in general? I mean, uh, that's what the Democratic Party obviously is part of. It's a certain sector, what we used to call, you know, their splits in the rolling class or whatever you want to call it. And so, of course, we can say, of course, but that doesn't solve anything. And if we want to fight for a government that actually serves people instead of helps corporate America rip them off, then we've got to organize around it. And that's where uh, we come back to the Don't Run Joe campaign, because if we organize effectively, there's really a an appreciable chance that we can derail uh, what Biden has in store. Who would you want to run instead of him, by the way? Well, it's a question that we really don't address in the Don't Run Joe campaign because the first step is to clear the path. If Biden remains a roadblock, then unfortunately, every progressive member of Congress has already made clear that they will not run against him in a primary. And I think that's unfortunate. I think there should be members of Congress willing and able to step forward and say, I'm willing to go to New Hampshire. I'm willing to go to uh, Michigan and uh, South Carolina and so forth. But we haven't heard a single Democrat in the House or Senate uh, say that. So that is a reality. And if I had my brothers, uh, Bernie Sanders would be president. Uh, I think given that cohort in Congress, there are others not in Congress, I'd rather have uh, be president. But if that's the, the subset, uh, that we're talking about, then I'd love for Rashida Tlaib to be president. Uh, you know, uh, Bernie would be great. I would even uh, forgive some of her uh, transgressions against us Bernie people uh, in 2020 and say it would be pretty darn good to have Elizabeth Warren be president. We first have to go, I think, through step A and B and C. 
And uh, that's why I think any passivity or acceptance of Biden being uh, a party nominee again should just be unacceptable. Uh, if we gave up on things because they were difficult, we wouldn't get hardly anything worthwhile done. And I'm just going to show people that don't run Joe, which says Democrats will need bold leadership in 2024. We're calling on Joe Biden to announce that he's not running for re-election. Then you can add your name, which I would do in front of everyone, but I just don't want to put my email in front of everyone. So rest assured, though, guys, I will be signing this. You also have another action at rootsaction.org, which is related to Ukraine. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, uh, we... Uh, believe that diplomacy, being a dirty word, is a horrible status quo in the corporate media and uh, in a lot of the discourse or what passes for discourse. And uh, so Rich Action has been campaigning along with other groups and many individuals to insist that uh, President Biden engage in genuine diplomacy, which has never happened from the United States in the entire uh, history of the uh, Ukraine conflict, both before and after the Russian invasion. So we're really pressing members of Congress and uh, president to say uh, that we not only uh, will advocate diplomacy in the abstract, but we believe that diplomacy and negotiation are absolutely essential. And actually, this is relevant to the discussion we've been having uh, in the last uh, minutes, because the status quo concept that from the top down, the Democratic Party and therefore party's advocacy is going to be determined by people like Biden and Harris and Pelosi and Clyburn and uh, now Hakeem Jeffries, the new kingmaker in the House. This is a prescription for disaster. Uh, deference to somebody in the Oval Office, because that person is of the party that you belong to in Congress, has a long and, and sordid and deadly history. I'm just old enough to uh, have skipped high school to go to uh, a Senate hearing. Oh, I think it was 1966 or so. And there was a meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And there was this guy with a push-grown mustache uh, cross-examining a representative of the Lyndon Johnson administration. And he just ripped into him. His name was Wade Morse. And he said, and he had a finger like this, you go back and tell the president, we're not going to accept this war. He said, just because the Russians do this kind of thing, it doesn't mean that we should do it. International law exists. And so Wayne Morris, a senator from Oregon, only one of two to vote against the Gulf of Tycoon resolution. He just expressed as a congressperson the outrage against the, the manifestation of military industrial conflicts in the case of the Vietnam War that was then escalating. We don't have those kind of voices in Congress right now. We need them desperately. Uh, when this letter came from 30 members of the Democratic caucus, the president was immediately withdrawn within 24 hours. That was a travesty. That was a shame. That was a, an effort by those in power to dismerge the very concept of democracy. So this is like heading full long into uh, further conflagration and escalation. We know that now, uh, Ukraine has uh, sent drones into Russia or into Russian territory. You know, if you're arming a country, you should have some say over the military activities of that country. And yet the U.S. government is pouring these billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine. And then 
oh no, we can't have anything to say about this. We're just the paymaster for uh, one half of the sides of the slaughter. So this just to get back to this this key point about uh, who is in office, what they're saying, what they aren't saying. Um, the fact that this letter was immediately withdrawn is not only shameful, but I think it points out that progressives need to develop a much healthier relationship with those in Congress, for instance, those who are leaders of the progressive caucus. Yes, we praise them when they do good things. When they do things that are counterproductive and counter to their espoused uh, ideology, such as supporting diplomacy, then we should call them to account. And I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Representative Jayapal, uh, chair of the Progressive Caucus, withdrew that letter. And then it wasn't long after that she said that she believes Joe Biden should be the party nominee in 2024. Why would she say that now? We know that there are much better options out there to have a nominee who actually will fight for Medicare for all, will fight for a real climate program, who will at least advocate for a real debate on demilitarization and then push for it to some degree, who would advocate for cutting the military budget instead of escalating it. I think we should give credit to Congressman Ro Khanna because he stood by that letter. But almost all of the members of the Progressive Caucus and the signers of that letter uh, basically either stayed silent when it was withdrawn or said, oh, I'm really glad it was withdrawn. Uh, We know that uh, Jamie Raskin uh, was very upset that the letter was released. Now, maybe the timing was questionable, but uh, my sources say that Jamie Raskin pushed internally for the letter to be withdrawn. We used to have a name for people in Congress who sounded liberal, who had a constituency on the left, and they really fought for some good domestic programs. And they were militarists. We called them Cold War liberals. Mm. And the Democratic Party in Congress is riddled with Cold War liberals right now. And progressives who really believe in what Martin Luther King said on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Church, that this is a demonic suction cue of uh, military spending, a demonic suction tube, as he called it, that was siphoning billions of dollars away from healthcare, education, housing, poor kids, elderly. He was saying this is a demonic way of siphoning money away from people's and their lives and giving it to the military industrial complex. And yet we have all these Democratic politicians praise Dr. King once or twice a year, and, and they are feeding that demonic suction tube, and they're depriving people of their lives here and elsewhere in the world at the other end of U.S. firepower. So I think this is all wrapped up together. All these different aspects that we're talking about, Katie, I think are really interrelated. And of course, it's crucial to develop social movements. And I think it's not an either-or choice. We develop social movements on the ground at the grassroots, regionally, nationally, and as much as we can internationally. At the same time, we fight for electoral power. And that's why I think it's absolutely crucial that we not cede any power to Joe Biden and the corporate Democrats and Wall Street and big tech and big pharma and all those forces that he represents, not cede them any ground. They should not have any space that we aren't fighting. 
What do your sources say? I mean, to the extent that you can reveal it, what did happen with that letter? Why did people drop it so quickly? Was it really the mistake of an aide? Why do you think they released it and then rescinded it? Or were they just too afraid of pissing people off? Well, it's unclear to me who actually pushed the button. I mean, you know, I could conjecture it's sort of hard to believe that that uh, Premier Jay Palm didn't uh, approve the release at that particular time. It was brewing for months, and I know it was circulated not only with dear colleague letters in the House, but among progressive groups. Uh, and some of them signed on to it. At Roots Action, we had a discussion among our team, and we decided not to sign it because it included praise of Biden's conduct in Ukraine. We thought it was just sort of a mild, but yet it actually was, in the context of policy, a step forward. It was an improvement of the discourse in Capitol Hill, and it did use the big D word. It apparently has been re-stigmatized uh, diplomacy. And so I think it was, you know, a, a positive thing. And it's true that the leaders of the Progressive Caucus failed to check back with members of Congress who had signed it in July when it was about to be released months later to say, hey, are you still cool with this being released? Uh, but once it was uh, put out in public, which I thought was great, you know, it sort of shattered the consensus that, hey, we're lockstep towards escalation. Uh, there was just a huge freak out, you know, and I, ironically, as I understand it, the White House wasn't that upset. It was just these, uh, sort of scaredy cats in the progressive caucus, frankly, so to speak, who said, oh no, it's right before an election. And what's ironic is that 57% of the public want diplomacy on polling. And that polling was in place in time. So there's a real skittishness, which is historic, unfortunately, among Democrats. They want to, they don't want to be portrayed as fill in the blank, soft on communism, soft on terrorism, soft on right. uh, capitalist Russians. Uh, although I think it was, um, Terry Gross on Fresh Air and NPR, uh, referred to Russia's communist, you know, in 2022. I mean, this is just, you know, how, how built in the imprinting is. Uh, but the fear is so deep on Capitol Hill that even if uh, members look at the polling, says that more than half of the country would support calling for diplomacy towards Russia uh, involving the Ukraine conflict, uh, just the fear, the fear just runs rampant. And can you explain a little bit more? I brought up the article that was praising Biden. You wrote a piece about Biden's attempt to move the primary calendar. And you cited Walter Shapiro, who at the New Republic wrote, Joe Biden's primary calendar is the anti-Bernie plan. By front-loading the 2024 presidential contest in southern states, the president's proposal would cement the Democrats as the center-left party and make it harder for future insurgents. So can you just synthesize how this move will be kneecapping progressives? I think it's an effort to kneecap progressives. And I think that we ought to recall that in 2015, when Bertie announced her president, of course, that was the first time, it was widely viewed by corporate media and political, you know, the smart guys in the room. Oh, that's just a quixotic tilting at windmills by some socialists. And I think the fear, the fear is really there. And these are countermeasures to climb more uphill. But I think because the Bidens of the world, so to speak, are in such a bubble, so they don't realize what grassroots organizing can do. And to the extent they do realize it, they're fearful. 
Uh, and we do have a flashback. I mean, when Eugene McCarthy went to New Hampshire, uh, in late 1967, he was laughed at, even though he's a senator and, you know, he's, he's out there in the snow and so forth. He got more than 40% of the primary vote against Lyndon Johnson and caused Johnson to announce he wouldn't run for president again. So, uh, Biden and those folks, they're fearful, even though the public persona and pretenses, oh, they got nothing to worry about. If they had nothing to worry about, they wouldn't have rejiggered the primary sequence to begin with. And I should mention that the Don't Run Joe campaign has uh, people on the ground in New Hampshire right now. And we've already accumulated several thousand signatures of a Don't Run Joe petition signed by New Hampshire Democratic voters. And we're just getting started. So frankly, I think that Biden have good reason to be fearful that he would have a very embarrassing showing in New Hampshire if it was the first primary state. And the way it's shaping out, because people in New Hampshire, including at the top of the Democratic Party, as reflected by their public statements, they're furious. They feel sandbagged by Biden, and they are determined, and they cite the state constitution to back it up. It's going to be the first. It's going to be the first primary. It's going to be before South Carolina. The countermeasure from the Biden DNC is to say, oh, in that case, we're not going to give you any delegates. Well, that's fine because the significance of New Hampshire has never been delegates in the momentum and the symbolism. The other part of it is, as in the past, the DNC says, well, if you're going to break our rules and go first, then you can't be in any debates, which is sort of ironic because Biden is proceeding to try to make sure that there are no debates. (laughs) You know, he just wants to be coronated. You know, he, it's, it's in sync with the attitude that if you're an incumbent president, you want to run again, you want to be renominated for a second term, you should, you should just have the crown on your head. You're like the king of the party. So there's a lot of contradictions that I think have not come out yet in mass media. And it's the contradictions that we need to organize, uh, if you will, to, you might say, exploit, but certainly make use of. Tell us about Hakeem Jeffries. You have a piece where you warn people about getting too excited about the passing of the torch from Nancy Pelosi to Hakeem Jeffries. Why should people be wary? Well, through the the corporate media, and of course, it's been amplified by virtually every member of Congress willing to comment, is that this is a great event. It's going from one generation to another. Nancy Pelosi is 30 years older than Hakeem Jeffries, who's 52 years old. And so isn't that wonderful? Uh, he's going to uh, break another uh, ceiling. He's going to be the first African-American leader of the party in Congress and so forth. Well, at the same time, you've got to look at his record. Uh, he's somebody who has started a pack with one of the very most corporate, not only corporate, but vicious anti-progressives in Congress, Josh Gottheimer, congressman from New Jersey, who was on a vendetta from the moment that Rashida Tlaib entered Congress, a lot of uh, anti-Palestinian viciousness coming from, and racism, frankly, from John Stoneheimer. Well, um, so here you have Hakeem Jeffries teaming up with him uh, to form a pact explicitly to prevent progressives from successfully primary uh, any incumbent, including some of the worst incumbents. And so it sort of follows the tradition of uh, Nancy Pelosi who went way out of her way to endorse and support Henry Cuellar, the anti-choice, anti-reproductive rights 
a Democrat from South Texas. And there's no question that if Pelosi hadn't intervened, then Jessica Cisneros uh, would be now a congresswoman. Cisneros are about to be about to be sworn in. So this is uh, sort of a lineage, and it gets back to this this point about the passing the torch, the next generation. Okay, fine, but what does that mean if, as Pelosi said, we have a new generation to lead? It begs the question: lead in what direction? And in the piece I wrote, I cited. Uh, an experience that my uh, colleague Jeff Cohen and I wrote about at the time uh, when we were doing a weekly column during the 1990s, Bill Clinton as president, there was a tremendous amount of hype. People, if they were around that time, would remember passing the torch. There was this footage of a young 16-year-old Bill Clinton in the Rose Garden of the White House shaking hands with President John F. Kennedy. And so that was it. The hype that was the, the mold of the publicity went forward ever since. And when uh, Bill Clinton was using that footage to be elected, he used it in many campaign ads. I was in Madison Square Garden at the convention that summer in 1992. And the place went berserk because here on the big screens is this picture of the nominee, Bill Clinton, shaking hands with John F. Kennedy. It was like, you know, manifest destiny of sorts. Okay, this is our guy now. The torch is passed. And that, that metaphor was used countless times by the mass media. So then what did Bill Clinton do? Uh, he pushed a, a bill that uh, led to greatly escalating mass incarceration. He brought NAFTA uh, to outsource jobs and attack uh, unions. He uh, championed with help of Hillary Clinton so-called welfare reform, which is a vicious attack on low-income women uh, and their children. And he also pushed successfully for Wall Street deregulation, deregulation of the banks, precursor and led towards the meltdown of 2007-2008. So ironically, but fittingly, when you really look at the record, this whole metaphor of passing the torch from one generation to another is really uh, something that should make us sit up and take notice and realize that they, as I say in the article uh, citing a song from the hoop, uh, don't get fooled again. You know, meet meet the old boss, meet the new boss. The continuity is what matters and that's what we should pay attention to. And what about third party candidates? Some people have asked in the chat, Brian Frederick, you asked about that. Yeah, I, I really wish the right wing would would have some third and fourth and fifth parties on the right wing. I wish the corporate Democrats would peel up and have a third and fourth and fifth fifth party. And I think we need to shortly distinguish between races that don't have partisan designations on the ballot. Uh, I live near Richmond, California, which has a terrific progressive uh, coalition, including some leadership from people in the Green Party. And they're winning elections, including city council and mayor. There's no designation on the ballot. And so it works. When it comes to the partisan races, uh, you know, to be blunt, these third-party efforts are at best a waste of time and depletion of energy. At worst, they help the right wing. I think that's just the way it's set up. So uh, I just think that we need to be serious about seizing power. 
You tweeted out an article, FAIR, and you're closely related to FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, which is a great outlet and somewhere I've written a bunch. But you tweeted out a couple of articles from from them. One of them was Action Alert. New York Times has found new neo-Nazi troops to lionize in Ukraine. Another one was NATO narratives and corporate media are leading to doorstep of doom. So can you summarize some of what's happening in the mainstream media when it comes to the war in Ukraine? The, the black and white portrayal is just a way to infantilize the public. It's not that it hasn't worked before. You just go through the history of the last um, six decades or so. Ho Chi Minh was Hitler. Sultan Wojciech was Hitler. Um, we had uh, uh, many examples of the mass media just piling on with whatever messaging is coming out of the White House and the Pentagon and the State Department. And we're seeing that again. I mean, I denounce, and certainly Roots Action, we denounce the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're slaughtering, the Russian government is slaughtering people. There's no defense. We also, uh, for 10 years at Roots Action, have been denouncing uh, NATO and the expansion of NATO, and that it was uh, setting the stage for uh, a possible global conflagration. And those sort of, if you will, nuances are totally unacceptable to the corporate mass media in the United States. It's it's good, bad. It's like a, uh, I don't know if there's still weekly readers around, but it's like a, it's a, it's in a, a way to infantilize and uh, so sim- simplify for their readers, viewers, listeners in corporate mass media so that there's, there's no complexity involved. And uh, certainly even very simple things that would just be, you know, they're hidden in plain sight. It's like, can you imagine if the Warsaw Pact persisted, led by Russia, and they had missiles uh, near the Rio Grande or pointing in from Canada towards the United States? I mean, to say that would be intolerable in Washington is an understatement. And yet, that sort of point of view, you know, the window on the world is so tinted red, white, and blue by the U.S. media, through the U.S. media, that the way that windows might look peering up from the Kremlin is just totally those ways are just totally delegitimized. So I think that's, that's, uh, unfortunately part of the war machinery. I mean, uh, for the Pentagon, it's as crucial for the White House. It's as crucial as the bombs and the bullets that they're shipping off, uh, to Ukraine. In terms of the other fear article that you mentioned, what was that again? Oh, sorry. Yes. That was action alert. New York Times has found new neo-Nazi troops to lionize in Ukraine. Right. And then you mentioned another one as. Oh, the other one was NATO narratives and corporate media are leading to doorstep of doom. Yes, I think that's so crucial. You know, right after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, President Biden gave his State of the Union address. And it was very long. And I went through it really word by word. I couldn't find any mention of nuclear weapons, nuclear war, the dangers thereof. And yet, if you go to the Bolton of Atomic Scientists website, you see that the doomsday clock has been moving closer and closer to doomsday, uh, global nuclear annihilation. And it's this uh, insistence from uh, the corporate media with rare exceptions that are momentary. And after all, the essence of a rep- repetition, the essence of the propaganda is the repetition or lack thereof. The silences are so powerful that what the United States is doing in concert with Russia uh, is to increase the chances of nuclear war. And 
One example would be that if you take a look at the ICBMs that exist, the United States has 400 ICBMs. Now, on hair trigger alert in the United States, as they have been for decades. And it's extremely difficult to get any corporate media outlet to do any coverage about the reality that the world would be safer if tomorrow the United States decommissioned all of those um, ICBMs. And there is a connection to Ukraine and the Ukraine war, because in this time of such great tension, the last thing you want is a weapon to be on hair trigger alert, especially when it's carrying an open warhead. This is not like some esoteric, extremely complicated uh, reality. It is a fairly straightforward reality. About a year ago, I wrote an article with Daniel Ellsberg in The Nation spelling that out. Daniel Ellsberg has a brilliant book uh, called The Doomsday Machine that goes into great detail. And so you would think, especially in times of heightened tension, between uh, the United States and the Soviet and, and Russia, the two uh, big nuclear superpowers, that some enterprising journalists with outlets that have hundreds and hundreds of reporters might bother to report on this. I mean, it's only about possible uh, annihilation of um, agriculture on this planet, nuclear winter, which by best estimates, if there was an exchange of thermonuclear warheads, would, within a few months, Eliminate about 99% of the people on this planet because agriculture would be destroyed within a matter of months because of uh, the results of a nuclear exchange and uh, therefore nuclear winter. This is, I can't think of a more important example of the abdication of the most basic journalistic responsibilities of corporate media. And then you look at the corporate media uh, deference to places like, I don't know, Northrop Grumman, that's uh, already uh, making hundreds of millions of dollars to refurbish ICBMs to begin with. And that's intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, they're, they're scattered over five states. It's sort of a, a public secret. You know, you can drive around uh, Wyoming or North Dakota and, oh, there's, there's a, a silo uh, with not Warhead capability to exterminate several million people will just keep on driving. Some other final questions from the chat. So Brian Frederick writes, all of the squad supported NATO expansion, which is true. So I guess one of the questions is, how do we pressure them not to do stuff like that? And then someone else wanted to know your thoughts on Ralph Nader. Sure. One well, on the first point. Uh, the vast amount of NATO expansion came before the squad arrived. Uh, maybe Montenegro, uh, when AOC was maybe not even quite before then. But I think there should be a much more critical attitude towards NATO in general. I think the U.S. and Protection has been saying this for years. The U.S. should be pulling out of NATO. Should There's no reason for it, except it's it's aggressive. It was busy in Afghanistan. It's not a, it's not a defensive. Uh, entity. And I think we need to pressure members of Congress, whether they're in the squad or the Progressive Caucus or anywhere else, to say that we need a huge slash of the military budget. The U.S. has 750 military bases overseas. That's three times at least more than all the other countries combined. I think Russia has 30. I think China has a dozen. 
And so we need to uh, build an anti-war movement that recognizes that, to quote the radical Dwight Eisenhower, every bomb, every bullet, every tank is a theft from the children of the world. So we ought to be doing that. And I I would broaden this out to more general uh, paradigm. We need a healthy relationship between progressives around the country and those who say they're progressive in Congress. And I would cite something that Martin Luther King said. We have some civil rights leaders, he pointed out long ago, who ostensibly are representing the movement to the establishment, but end up representing the establishment. And there are a lot of members of Congress who say they're progressive, and that's more the role that they, they play, and uh, we need to call them on it. In terms of Ralph Nader, you know, Ralph has done so many wonderful, wonderful things in his career. I mean, going back to seatbelts and much more and founding so many great organizations. Uh, I was really pleased uh, that he called upon voters in late October and into November this year to vote for Democrats because he eloquently pointed out that we are now dealing with a Republican party that is so fascistic, that is so hostile to elemental basis of democracy that we have to join forces at electoral times uh, to defeat them. And so, you know, I give Ralph a lot of credit for that. I, I disagreed with him uh, running for president in 2004. Uh, and I thought that it was essential to defeat uh, George Bush from becoming president again. More broadly, I think we have an opportunity now to build a broad coalition against militarism uh, or Medicare for all for a real climate change program and so many other things that we know are essential. Great. Anything else that you want to make sure that we cover? Well, I think that we have a lot of capacity to organize. I would just say make a more general, but I think important observation that the mass media keep telling us that we can't make much difference. And whether it's uh, this program, which is important, and many other media outlets that are progressive, independent, we've got to sustain and build means of communication that have counter narratives and have other information. Because basically, there's one overwhelming message coming from the head of the two major political parties, the heads of them, and uh, the corporate media. The message is to keep buying things treat politics as a spectator sport, and, oh yeah, vote once in a while. And we know that everything we have to be proud of in this country came because people organized from the bottom up. And as one of my colleagues said at Roots Action, the hope is in the fight. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And any other advice about how to hold Democrats' feet to the fire? Well, of course, I encourage people to go to rootsaction.org and get our action alerts. Uh, and again, to go to don'trunjoe.org. More basically, I think you have a congressional representative who has an office probably very near you, unless you're in an extremely rural area, and they should hear from you. Uh, at Roots Action, we organized with other groups something called Defuse Nuclear War, and we had picket lines at more than 40 congressional offices on one day in October to urge them, demand, really, that they acknowledge and try to reduce the real dangers of nuclear war. And we can take every issue that we really care about 
let's not be passive towards these people. They're supposed to work for us. And we can set up picket lines. We can insist on meetings. We can do demonstrations and nonviolent direct action, sit-ins if necessary. They're supposed to serve us. And they're not doing us a favor when they talk with us. We should be around the country confronting our members of Congress. Well, thank you so much, Norman. Hey, thank you, Katie. Come back again. Love to. And don't run Joe. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.